Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. My name is Ben Hunter. I am Skyping in today with our fellow Booktopian, Shannon Prasad, and we are very excited to be speaking about Pip Williams's latest, greatest, newest debut novel, The Dictionary of Lost Words. How are you, Pip? I'm very well. How are you, Ben? How are you, Shanu? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a huge pleasure. Um, Pip, uh, just to start, um, how did you come to write about this really interesting episode of history, the um, the the founding, the forging of the Oxford English Dictionary? Well, actually, I had no intention about writing about the Oxford English Dictionary, but a friend gave me a little book uh, by Simon Winchester called The Surgeon of Crowthorn. Um, and I think in other places it's known as The Professor and the Madman. And I found it fascinating. And it's nonfiction uh, and it, it sort of gives a little bit of a history of the dictionary, but mostly it focuses on the relationship between James Murray, who was the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, and William Chester Minor, who was a patient at Broadmoor. Um, and when I got to the end of it, as interesting as that story was, the thing that stuck with me for, for probably a year, it just kept um, popping up in my mind, was the idea that the Oxford English Dictionary was a very male endeavour. And it's something I'd never thought about before. And I've never questioned the authority of dictionaries. But suddenly I realised that the Oxford English Dictionary was was developed in, uh, it started during Victoria the Queen Victoria's reign. So it was a very Victorian endeavour. Um, it was a very male endeavour. All of the editors were men. All of the lexicographers were men. Um, most of the assistants were men. Um, but most importantly, the literature that they based the definitions of words on was mostly written by men prior to the early 20th century. Um, so they look back hundreds of years uh, to get textual evidence of how words had been used in order to define them. And so I just had this um, question in my mind, what happens when our language is defined by one gender, even though yeah. both genders have to use it? And, and does it mean that we may have missed something in defining the language, not from a, not just from a woman's point of view, but perhaps also from a class point of view. So a lot of people would have been illiterate prior to the 20th century. Um, and I suspect that because they couldn't write words down, their words may not have been recorded at all. And I think we've probably lost quite a lot of words. Um, yes, and, and that's 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 really just nailed the, the, the title of the novel, The Dictionary <laughs> of Lost Words. Um, it's 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 fascinating to think about this resource that we take for granted, um, its authority, as you as you say, um, the dictionary. Um, but to think of that as one big literary boys club um, is kind of beguiling. So I can understand how that's nagged at you and I'm, I'm questioning myself as to why I've never really um, picked on that um, myself it, it just seems so obvious <laughs> yeah and actually um, I mean I, I sort of didn't fully answer your question for a long time I didn't think about writing a book about it I was just curious about it but then this this little story kept popping up whenever I did any 
reading about the dictionary and and it did talk about this a single word went missing during the um, development of the Oxford English Dictionary so it should have been in the dictionary but it was accidentally lost accidentally left out and that word was bond made um, bond made means a slave girl uh, and I read this story in a few different places and realized that there was no explanation for how this word was lost and that's when I thought, oh, there's there's a fictional story here because basically it's a mystery that's never been solved and fiction is a way of kind of exploring mysteries, I think, and, and that's where I got the idea to start writing. This is this is the one question I was really, when I read the novel, I was really curious about when I got to the end. Uh, not, I didn't think about it at all during the novel, but um, at the end after I read your uh, sort of, you know, your, your notes about sort of uh, where you'd started um, the story from and, and how you'd gotten all of your ideas and the research that you'd done, um, I was curious as to um, what was the um, impetus behind making the main character um, an a fictional character when you have used so many true historical um, characters and and even speeches in the um, in the book itself, um, including some women who were um, who were instrumental um, in 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 the dictionary, even though as you said then they were not the um, the decision makers. Um, so what what was it that led you to decide to um, when when you did decide uh, to, after this you know bond made word sort of mystery came up um, to to make your main lead character fictional. That's such a good question. Um, the main reason was that there were so many gaps in the history, in the official history around the Oxford English Dictionary. There's a real focus on James Murray. There's a, a focus on the university press. Um, there's a focus on the processes around developing the dictionary. But there's very little about the women who were involved. So you mentioned a few of them there. Uh, some of the key women who worked on the dictionary include um, a few daughters of James Murray, so Ross Frith Murray and um, her sister Elsie uh, both worked on the dictionary for decades, actually. Um, and also one of the other editors whose name was Henry Bradley, his daughter Eleanor Bradley also worked on the dictionary for decades. Um, but there's only about a paragraph about them anywhere that I could find. There were also a few very um, involved volunteers. So very early on in the piece, uh, James Murray sent out a call around the world asking people to send in on slips of paper about the size of a postcard words with quotations showing how they've been used in literature. Um, and these, these quotations is what they use to build definitions. It's also what they use to identify how words have been used throughout history and to show how words' meanings may have changed. And one of the um, women that I read about was a woman called um, uh, Edith Thompson, and she worked on the dictionary from the publication of the first word to the publication of the last. And yet she gets just a few lines in history. And so the fictionalisation of this story really is trying to weave fiction between the lines of the dictionary because um, between those lines it's just white space essentially and the fiction uh, was meant to explore what might exist between the lines of, of the actual dictionary and of the history. That's really amazing, and I really, uh, I really felt that when I was, because um, I, I had no idea really about any of this story at all before I started reading the book, and I couldn't tell 
who was real and who wasn't real. Um, and in fact, Esme felt so real to me that when I found out towards at the end that that she wasn't actually a character, um, I was quite quite sad. But I was very happy that there, that a number of your other characters were real because I also loved them. Oh, good. Yeah, actually, Esme's become quite real to me too. I, I guess the way I think about Esme is that she she is a representation of a lot of women who have fallen out of the history books and fallen out of the dictionary. Um, probably one of the more interesting characters from the point of view of your question is Edith Thompson. So what I've tried to do in the book, weaving fiction through history, you know, is there's a bit of tension there and a lot of people would be critical of um, my attempt to, I suppose, use real people in a fictional story such as James Murray and his daughters and m most of the lexicographers I talk about are real as well. Um, what I tried to do was be as true as I could to the characters that I to the natures of those people from the research that I've done and the reading that I've done. And I've tried not to judge anything that they uh, do or say. Where I use fiction um, is with my fictional characters and their and the relationships that they have with the real characters. Um, but one of the characters that sort of overlaps and is in a grey area there is Edith Thompson. So in the book, she's mostly known as Dita. And Dita is Esme's godmother, and I've and Esme gives her that nickname in a way to signify that part of what I'm saying, part of part of what I've written about Dita is fictional, but she's based on Edith Thompson, and in fact I give her her real name in the book as well. So when she's corresponding with James Murray, which she did. I use Edith Thompson as the way she signs off her letters so that we know that this is the real woman I'm talking about. And I, I really struggled with whether I should do that or not um, because I do make so much of her up. Mm. Um, but in the end I decided, no, she's been left out of the historical record and I didn't want to leave her name out of this as well. And so that's why I gave her the nickname, which is fictional, but I also allowed her to keep her own name. And in fact, some of, like you said, there are speeches and so on in the book that are that do come from the historical record. There's actually a little note in there from Edith to James Murray, which which I actually managed to get my hands on and literally held in the archives. So that is also a true note from, from Edith Thompson to James Murray. And I do explain all of this at the back of the book so that people can then, you know, they can be clear about what is the truth and what is the fiction. Yeah, it, there's there's so much research. It, it sounds like you've, you've done to create this story. Um, can you can you sort of, for the listener, um, sort of take us to the scrippy and, and just describe the work that was done day in and day out for a period of decades? And, um, and what was... Um, Esme's place um, in that in that room in that garden shed, a glorified yeah. garden shed. <laughs> sure. I mean, when I found this out, it was just I found it so intriguing and really so literary, really. So the scriptorium, that actually that word refers to somewhere where manuscripts are written, um, and it's it's the name that James Murray gave to the garden shed that he and other lexicographers and assistants um, where they actually did their work, where they sorted through thousands and thousands and thousands of slips um, and where they 
did the defining and the sorting and and all of that. Um, it was in the back garden of his house in Oxford. Um, by all accounts, it was freezing cold in winter and the men would sit around a sorting table um, with, with newspapers stuffed into their shoes in winter and their overcoats on, um, unable to get completely warm. And my character, Esme... She's the daughter of one of the lexicographers, who's also fictional, but but most of the other lexicographers are real. Um, and because he's a widower and she's an only child, he's allowed to bring her to work. And now this isn't unusual. So Dr Murray's children, and he had 11 children, all of his children worked on the dictionary. So they all helped to sort slips, for instance. So it wasn't unusual to necessarily have a child in the scriptorium. Um, and she would spend most of her days, uh, most of her day underneath the sorting table, you know, playing games. She was she was obviously a very sort of isolated child and, you know, an insulated child. Uh, but she found pleasure in the words as well. But, um, you know, she came about it in different ways. Yeah. And, and in this um, uh, sort of coming of age of Esme, um, we see suffrage and and the first wave of feminism. Um, you know, you you spoke uh, earlier about um, the lost words and 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 women's words not being present in in our in our male dictionary. Um, she's intersecting there, uh, but there's also um, that that idea of class. Um, and so you 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 kind of introduce this array of really fascinating female characters um, which which challenged the kind of um, pretensions of Esme and, and help uh, shape a sort of view on the world. Um, uh, can you introduce us to some of those brilliant women in this book? Sure. Yeah, and in fact, Esme is unusual in some respects because she's not being brought up by a mother um, in you know this this late Victorian era, and and then she grows up in an Edwardian era. She hasn't got a um, mother, a, you know, a mother in her life, and her father is, uh, if you can imagine, you know, a, a kind of bookworm, and he's very wordy, and he's a bit of a nerd, and he adores Esme, and she adores him. So she has a slightly strange upbringing from the start. But she um, finds women um, in her life so that various women become very important to her. One is Edith Thompson or Dita, who is her godmother. Um, And she's a very educated, small L liberal um, woman. Um, Her her grandfather, by the way, in real life was a parliamentarian who, who advocated very strongly for universal suffrage and women's suffrage back in the sort of early 1800s. So she has a history of feminism really throughout her family. So she's one person that Esme turns to for advice. Um, She's the official person, I suppose, who advises um, Esme and her father in the absence of, of a mother. But more importantly is Lizzie. Now, Lizzie's actually only about eight years older than Esme, but she's a young maid in James Murray's house and she helps in the kitchen. Um, And she basically takes on the task of looking after Esme whenever she's not in the scriptorium under the sorting table. And they become the closest of friends. Esme grows up with this servant, essentially. And because she spends so much time with Lizzie, she is... 
exposed to other women and other situations um, that perhaps a middle class girl of that time might not be exposed to. And that includes people who work at the covered market in Oxford selling selling food and vegetables and all sorts of other things. Um, and probably one of the most one of the characters I just loved writing and imagining is Mabel. And Mabel is essentially a, an old prostitute who now has a very pathetic little store at the covered market and she sells flotsam and jetsam essentially, stuff she's found, found yep. objects, and also objects that she whittles. And she in particular is very important to Esme's understanding of uh, what words are put in and what words are left out of, of the dictionary. So I won't go too much into that, but um, I, I so enjoyed Mabel myself. She's an awesome character to read as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Chanu and I were both saying um, how surprisingly moving this this novel becomes. Um, you know, you, you, you expose us to so much. You know, um, Esme has this incredible coming of age. Um, she goes through a lot. It's a very it's a very unique life that she has. Um and um, all this stuff is going on in history. Um, the suffragettes, as I said, um, but then there's the early 20th century, there's mechanization, and then, and then suddenly this dark shadow of war just falls over all of Oxford, um, and that change comes really quick. Um, how did you go um, balancing sort of the light and the dark in this novel? Because... Um, it's wonderful, but it's also a bit of a tearjerker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, I'm someone described the way someone described writing to me once. Um, you're either a knitter or a quilter, um, and a knitter is someone who starts at the beginning and writes their way through to the end, and a quilter is someone who writes scenes um, or plots it out and then sews it all together. Um, I'm, I think I'm a quilter in that I did plot this out to, to some extent, but then as I wrote each chapter, I did discover within the chapter what that section was about, if that makes sense. So I had a broad sense of where I was going with this, but I didn't know the detail until I wrote it. And I have to admit that um, this is an extraordinary time in history. So there were a lot of things I had to write about. I had no choice because I was weaving this through through history. I had to talk about the suffrage movement because, of course, Esme would have had some experience with that. I had to talk about World War One because at this time World War One happened, so I had no choice. It's not until I started the writing that I too figured out what it might mean to Esme and the people around her to go through some of these experiences and to be part of this time. Um, I found it out partly through research and partly just through the writing and imagining myself into that time and place. Um, you know, to that extent, it's really just having a sense of your own um, reactions and emotions, but also being able to observe other people in any time. I don't think, I don't think as humans we've changed that much in terms of how we respond to um, really uh, big things like like war. What I'm finding, you know, just at the moment with the coronavirus is, you know, that is something that happened all of a sudden. Um, 
and suddenly everything can change. And and so I suppose what I depict in the novel um, rings true to that because um, overnight everything can change and it was an overnight thing. War was de- declared at midnight and the next day um, 63 people, walked, 63 men, were marched out of um, Oxford University Press to um, go into training to go to war. Now, that's a very quick turnaround um, and, and everything changed for the city and for the men, but particularly for the women. You know, they, they suddenly, they still didn't have the vote, but they suddenly had a whole lot more responsibility. It certainly did. Um, we've really enjoyed um, talking about this. We're running out of time. <laughs> um, uh, how um, how did you go um, with the uh, kind of publication side of this and sort of got this beautiful story together? Um, what was the uh, kind of um, process to uh, get it to print? What was it like working with Firm Press? And what is it, how does it feel <laughs> To be um, a bestseller, it's getting, um, it's they're rushing a reprint of this book. Um, it's selling like hotcakes, um, uh, but you can't go out and celebrate. I know. <laughs> or, or go visit bookshops. <laughs> I can't. Uh, which is, I, in fact, I can. There's one bookshop that I can go and sign copies at, and that's my local bookshop in the Adelaide Hills. Um, and so they're the only books that have been signed. But and I really miss not being able to. Um, have that interaction with readers. But in terms of the public, public publication process, um, I wrote this in in solitude, really. I didn't show it to anybody until it, until it was done, um, as much as Martin from Affirm Press, the publisher at Affirm Press, wanted to have a look at it. I, I sort of just wanted to sit with it on my own for a while. But once I'd finished the first draft, I sent it off to him and and he loved it and... And that was incredibly reassuring. Um, they published my first book, which was a memoir called One Italian Summer. And I had a wonderful experience um, with that book, a wonderful experience with uh, Ruby Ashby Orr, who was my editor. Uh, I learned so much about writing uh, through the editing process. And I was fascinated by the entire publication process. So I was very um, pleased that Martin wanted to pick up the book. Um, and really, I, I sent him the first draft in September last year. And um, I brought forward a research trip, my final research trip to Oxford, so that I could fill in some of the gaps, then sent him the draft. And um, it was ready for print in January. So uh, there was quite a bit of toing and froing with Ruby, um, but also with um, editors overseas because in November they took it to the Frankfurt Book Fair and it was picked up by publishers all over the world, um, including Chatto and Windus in the UK um, and Ballantine Books in the US. And those two editors also contributed to, um, you know, to some of that editorial process, which was an enormous privilege. Uh, one of them in particular, she actually went to university in Oxford, so she could she could point out. <laughs> She could point out where I'd, you know, where I'd gone astray with some of the geography or, or whatever. Um, so that was wonderful. Um, but I feel incredibly privileged to be edited. Um, I love that process. I'm, I love critical feedback. I love to be told where I've gone wrong because it can only, 
make it better. And and I think um, if you all love this book, it is it is partly down to um, you know Ruby Ashby or who's the editor and and to everybody else at Affirm Press who've had a say in in you know what's working and what's not. And I feel very grateful for having so many people on my team really. <laughs> I think we're very grateful to have your novel. <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrific piece of work. Um, will you write again and uh, will it be fiction? Will it be non-fiction? What will you do next? I do have another book in my mind. Um, I have I have so enjoyed writing The Dictionary of Lost Words. Um, it was a joy. You know, I, I have none of those horror stories of writer's block or anything. I looked forward to it every day. And um, you were saying there were times when it made you cry. Well, there were times when it made me cry just writing it. You know, you sometimes don't know the story until it comes out onto the keyboard and occasionally, um, you know, something that would happen to Esme would would bring tears to my eyes as well. But I I really enjoyed the the universe that it's set in and I found out um, all sorts of other interesting things as I was doing the research, particularly about Oxford University Press. So I do have this idea about another book that would be set in the bindery of the press. Uh, you are which... making me very happy. Uh, <laughs> well, that was because I was hoping you were going to say that it, that we weren't going to leave the world behind no. <laughs> just yet. Well, and it's fascinating, you know, because the press was such a it's it. It's a place called Jericho, which is just outside the main city of Oxford. That's where Oxford University Press is. And it's like a company town. So pretty much everyone who lived in Jericho had something to do mm. with the press. But the but the jobs were very delineated. So the women really could only work in the bindery. Um, so they are the women who basically put the pages together and bound them into books. And I was fascinated by the process but also the fact that only women did this job. But when the war started and they lost so many printers and typesetters and um, all of the other all of the other jobs that men did, um, very reluctantly, Horace Hart, who was the what's called the controller, he was in charge of the press, very reluctantly he had to start employing women as printers. And I just love this idea of how war changed everything for uh. Um, and by the by the end of the war, you know, um, women partially got the vote in 1918 at the end of the war, um, which, you know, was basically because they proved themselves during the war that they were capable and, you know, adult human beings. <laughs> um, yeah, and there's so, again, there's so much. I, You know, this book is, is, doesn't finish in 1915. This is the Dictionary of Lost Words. It finishes in... Um, 1989, but but a lot of it finishes in 1915, and so much more happened um, around that time, and I'm interested to explore that. I cannot wait. <laughs> I, I'll put my hand up to be an early reader of anything you want to uh, to send through. That would be totally fine by me. <laughs> Excellent. I'll make sure. Um, get, I'll make sure you get a draft, Shanu. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Pip, thank you so much for spending some time with us this afternoon and congratulations again on such a special and um, delightful book. Oh, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Shanu. It's been a real pleasure and I hope you both stay safe and sane <laughs> during the next few months. <laughs> We're doing our best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. And-
if you're listening and you want to get your hands on this wonderful book, the name is The Dictionary of Lost Words. Um, go to your local bookshop and grab it or visit us online at booktopia.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.